Welcome to the Sales Edge Podcast. In this episode, I interview living sales legend Ben Gay III. This will be an episode you'll remember forever. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. If you've been in sales for more than a few years, you've heard the name Ben Gay III, and it's my honor to be able to have him to share his wisdom and insight with you. If for some reason you're not familiar with Ben, I mean, it, it is a fact that he is a living legend in the sales world. More than 50 years in professional selling, he has been, as he says, the number one salesperson in every organization of which he's worked. At 25 years old, he was the president of the largest direct sales or network marketing company. And this man was personally trained by other legends. Think of some of these names, J. Douglas Edwards, Dr. Napoleon Hill, Earl Nightingale, William Penn Patrick, Zig Ziglar, and many of the other giants. If you're into personal development, you know the people and the sages that Ben has been around. He's one of the most famous, popular, and powerful sales trainers in the world. And he, he writes and publishes a series called The Closers. Now, this is on audio, and he's going to give you a link to go get a super deep discount on his audio programs. And this series is considered to be the foundation of professional selling. It's what I was studying back in the early 90s in my early days at Gateway Computers. Ben's also the founder and is the current executive director of the National Association of Professional Salespeople. And him and his lovely wife, Gigi, live near Lake Tahoe in the little northern California town of Placerville, California. And that is where the California gold rush began. Ben, welcome to the show today. Thank you very much, Gene. I appreciate it. And uh, it's so what did I miss in your bio? And, and the truth be told, everybody who's listening right now, I had to restart this recording because I was nervous in, in interviewing Ben. I just wanted everything to be perfect because I have so much regard for this man. But, but Ben, what did I miss in your bio? Uh, handsome. Uh, A handsome. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> handsome would have been helpful. Now you didn't miss anything in the, in the bio. I'm just a humble salesperson, high school graduate, thrown out of two high schools before I was able to escape from the last one. And uh, I got lucky. I, by accident of birth, I was born in the right zip code. I was surrounded by salespeople and entrepreneurs uh, two blocks out the front gate of East Lake Country Club in Atlanta, Bobby Jones' home course. So. I grew up sitting in the men's grill if we weren't playing golf, listening to my father talk to business leaders, the founders of Home Depot and whoever the chairman of the board of Coca-Cola was at the time. And the only rule was be quiet, listen, be quiet. And uh, so I did. And I grew up sort of not knowing anything else. I thought everybody owned their own business. I thought everybody was in selling. And I thought everybody did well. So my old friend, Jim Newman, coined the term comfort zone. My comfort zone was set high. Uh, although I escaped without a formal education, uh, I knew what I wanted to do. And I went out and did it. Had some ups and downs along the way, as we all have. Uh, but uh, by and large, it's been a good run. Thank God for selling. Thank goodness for selling. And Ben, you actually were the person that coined the phrase master closer. And I learned about this, gosh, 30 years ago in the closers part one. And then you created a term called sales infiltration. So talk about master closer, then talk about sales infiltration. What does that really mean? Well, a master closer is hitchhiking on master carpenter or master anything where you have conquered your trade or your skill. So uh, the only thing I added to that was closers instead of master something else. Sales infiltrators, uh, I've been trying for years to figure out a way to explain the nuances and subtleties of selling the way it's really done at the highest levels uh, by, this, by H. Ross Perot, who used to uh, crack his IBM yearly quota in 15 or 20 days at the first of the year, reason he went off and started his own business was IBM wasn't a challenge and they capped his income. But uh, in studying him and, and many of the other greats in business and selling and so on, the greatest salesman I ever personally worked with was a gentleman named Jimmy Rucker, James H. Rucker Jr. He was my running buddy in high school. 
fraternity brother uh, for the three weeks I lasted in college. And uh, he was just a natural. He couldn't tell you, he was not a good sales trainer because he couldn't tell you what he did. He, but I studied him. Uh, we were running buddies, but I was taking notes the whole time we worked together. He was a sales infiltrator, although he didn't had never heard the term because I hadn't made it up yet. The way it came, I was writing the closers, part two. I was down to the last chapter, and I still hadn't managed, good as it is. I think it's my favorite of all the books I've had a hand in, which is 24 now between my name on the cover and ghost written. Uh, and uh, one day I'm sitting in the office finishing up the closers part two and there's a knock on the door and a guy comes in with a tool belt on he says i'm here to to check your filtration system and i said what he said your filtration system i assume that had something to do with air conditioning but the word filtration hit me like a thunderbolt and i got up said i'm glad to meet you you're gonna have to come back some other day schedule it with the folks downstairs they'll work it out for you and i walked into the door and through the latch and sat down and wrote i call it inspired writing i was literally inspired my hand was writing like it didn't belong to me and i wrote and coined the term sales infiltration because that's what the great salespeople do they get inside of the prospect. They're not fighting. You know, most people look at selling. There's team A, the salesperson, versus team B, the prospect or customer, and he or she must be conquered and outwitted and outsmarted and so on. Well, the people I knew growing up didn't do that. Uh, they were uh, they were friends. They'd be your closest buddy before you before they let go of your hand, and. Uh, so I, I realized that's what I was looking for. And that sales infiltration, I think it runs 40 some odd pages and it's the best thing ever written. I say this humbly, best thing ever written about selling by me or anybody else. The way I describe it to people when they're looking at the whole closers series, which is now we're, we have closers part one, part two, part three, four, five, and six are being written and we're gonna expand the series each of the new ones zeroes in on one industry, you know, the investment banking or whatever. But each one is especially where the closers one, two, and three are applied almost any kind of selling. And uh, that's, that was the breakthrough for me in uh, selling, being able to explain it to somebody else. Zig Ziglar, for instance, my, he and I joined the same business on the same day, Wednesday, September 15, 1965, in Atlanta, Georgia. He was 18 years older. Zig was in the Navy the day I was born, but we both got into a situation to make serious money in the same meeting on the same day in Atlanta. And uh, immediately were thrown into competitions. Neither one of us cared, really, a little ego maybe. But the way I became president of Holiday Magic Cosmetics, the largest MLM of its day, bigger than Amway and Shackley combined at the time, was uh, I, they had a, a year-long sales contest. First prize was a mystery prize. Second prize was a Rolls Royce. Third was a Lincoln and on down the lines of steak knives, probably. And uh, uh, I won. Uh, and the reason I won, Gene, this is something that you might want to share with folks, is I wasn't really, I knew it was going on, but it, I wasn't raised competitive that way. I was raised, do your very best every day, you compete with yourself, and it is what it is. So I knew I was probably in the top five, six, something like that. Sort of surprised me when I won. The margin by which I won was the volume I did on the last day of the contest when I held a, a, an opportunity meeting. That amount of volume is what I won by. Who came in second and got the Rolls Royce was Zig Ziglar. Zig was having a victory party in Columbia, South Carolina that night, so he didn't generate any volume. <laughs> and... Uh, so that has turned me off on victory parties. <laughs> Never have a victory party <laughs> until the trophy is in your hand. 
So that's, uh, you know, get in the right place, find a good product and so on. Just rambling for a split second, uh, because you, you, you wouldn't know to ask me this, I don't think. People say, you know, how do you get ahead in selling? And my secret formula is 85% of all the problems in selling go away when you're selling a quality product or service, the best you can find. And it's competitively priced. Doesn't have to be the cheapest, but you got to be in the ballpark. Competitively priced, and you spend your time communicating in person via the internet, on the phone, whatever. You spend your time talking to qualified prospects, qualified geographically, religiously, financially. You know, whatever it, the qualifications are for that particular product. So a quality product or service, competitively priced, spend your time talking to qualified prospects. That's 85% of all the problems in selling. And I can't tell you how many times I talk to people, salespeople, who are breaking one, two, or three of those rules. And then they're going, teach me the magic close that will make me a closer. I said, I don't, I don't know one to overcome stupidity. Hey, Ben. I remember, and I don't know if I learned this in your books and tapes or if it was somebody else's, but there's two things I want to cover in this next question. One yeah. is the notion that says this, closing is not something you do to somebody. It's something you do for somebody. And then it combines with another phrase that that is always rung in my head since I read this the first day. Now, this is this is literally 30 years ago, 1991. Always think like your customer. So you put yourself in your customer's shoes, knowing that nobody wants to be closed, but I want you to just play that out. Well, whether that's where you first learned it or not, it is in, in one form or another, those two points in everything I've ever written or said, every seminar I've ever done, because that is uh, terribly important. And that was what I was talking about earlier. I had a bunch of people in a, in a card type seminar one time five or six hundred people i'm guessing right up in front on the left hand side i'll never forget where they were sitting or how they looked was a little group of people 10 12 people who were more shabbily dressed than all the others it's like when you go to a century 21 meeting the people in the faded yellow coats aren't doing well the ones in the bright gold coats are new so you got to sort those out and figure out who's who well, this crowd Look, I'm exaggerating. It looks like they just crawled out from under a car and they're all sitting there together talking among themselves. We get down to the question and answer thing and they one of them raised their hand. How can you help us sell more cars? And I said, well, uh, I'd suggest you do all the things I've been talking about for six or seven hours here. But besides <laughs> that, uh, what are you selling? What kind? They said, you goes. Well, many of your listeners are probably too young to know, but a Yugo was a car made in Yugoslavia. It was the cheapest car made and sold in the United, made in Yugoslavia and sold in the United States for a reason. It was a piece of junk. I used to kid and say it had rear window defrosters so your hands wouldn't get cold when you were pushing it. <laughs> so, so I said to the, the group, of all the cars in the world to sell and you're in a room full of people that are probably selling 50 different types in this room why'd you pick a yugo well i don't know you know and they put an ad in the paper and so on so here's my suggestion for selling more cars one when the seminar is over which is coming up quickly go back to your office uh, go to your desk if you have one unpack it put it all in the box wish the sales manager and the owner well and go work for somebody who's selling cars that aren't an embarrassment. That's a quality product. So you don't, if you're selling Yugos, you had to do to close, you had to do something to somebody. If you're selling Rolls Royces and you have, and your prospect has the money, you're doing something for someone. Pretty simple thing. You know, if you wouldn't sell as in the closers part two, there's a chapter on it. Basically, the message is if you wouldn't sell it to your mother at full retail, don't sell it to anybody, assuming she was qualified to buy the product or service. Then as for, for your second point, think like your customer. That's one of the secrets of my coaching and consulting. 
when I enter a situation, I think to myself, how do I want to be treated starting right now? What do I want them to say, do, act like, and so on? Because I'm thinking of it like a customer when I'm selling a new product or helping to develop one or if it's one of mine or whatever. I Before I get far down the trail, I get out of my skin, get into their skin. I sales infiltrate myself and go, if I were a prospect of this product, what would I want to hear, say, do? Uh, what what do I want it to you? Because all customers, as you know, it's an old cliche, but it's so true. All They're listening to a radio station and the initials stand for what's in it for me. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, they're listening, they're nodding, they're probably thinking about other things, but they're looking attentive. And what they're waiting for is to hear what's in it for them. And if there's nothing in it for them, you're out of luck. So, and that goes back to the 85% sell products and services where there's a lot in it for qualified people. There's a lot in it for everybody where you can be a proud representative. What I do is I don't sell the product so much as I sell Ben Gay. Again, some of you people may not be old enough, but I, I'm sure they still have it, but it's not the big deal it used to be. There used to be a thing called the good housekeeping seal of approval. And people of my mother's generation wouldn't buy a product <laughs> if they could possibly avoid it. They didn't have the good housekeeping seal of approval. What I do is I sell Ben Gay, my uh, uh, better qualities, such as they are, and that I'm an expert in whatever we're talking about at the time. And I make sure I am so you can't catch me not being one. And then I give it the Ben Gay seal of approval. Here's my magic clothes. We haven't gotten this far yet, but in, in uh, at the end of sales infiltration, my magic clothes is, and frequently, uh, Gene, I've had to spend, you know, a half an hour or half a day getting in position to use it. I'm a sniper when it comes to selling. I don't scatter, you know, I don't fire a shotgun at, at uh, quail, a covey of quail, and then go pick up the unlucky ones who happen to get hit by my scatter shot. I'm the sniper in the tree who'll sit there without doing anything but shallow breathing and blinking occasionally, waiting for the shot. And when I take the shot, my closing rate is 86% ever since I've been keeping records. I haven't been able to get it above that except temporarily from time to time. Doesn't drop beneath that. And it's because I sell quality products that are competitively priced. I talk to qualified people. I'm a sales infiltrator. And when I ask you for your order, I already know the answer because I'm in sync with you. I'm on your team. I'm on the team that you and I have formed together. So the magic closes this. Gene, based on what you've told me, here's what I suggest we do. And then I tell them what we're going to do. And then I say, fair enough. Now, it could be based on what we've been discussing. But the, the, the bracket in the sentence is, Gene, based on what you've told me, here's what I suggest we do. I'm an equal team member now. I'm just the one who knows more about the product or service than you do. But you're an equal partner with me. Fair enough. And when I ask fair enough, and depending on the situation, I tend to work off pieces of paper, yellow pads and so on. Uh, I'm already writing down the order. I know the answer, or I wouldn't have asked the question. I got in position. I'm a sales infiltrator. Based on what you've told me, here's what I suggest we do. Then you lay it out Fill in, in a very point. simple what Tommy Hopkins would call a trial close. Fair enough. Yep. It's so good. You know, and yeah, anybody it's not, who studies. It's not, just a, it's not just a trial close. It's the close. That's the close. Sounds so, it sounds so soft and warm. It's, you know, when somebody says fair, lays out a reasonable thing, has become your friend, lays out a reasonable proposition and says fair enough, it's hard to say no to that. And on the rare occasion when they do say no, uh, then I say, oh, okay, I must have missed something. Tell me what we missed. Keep hearing we in there, Gene. Yes. We, okay. Tell me what we missed. And then they will tell you 
how to sell them. Of the 14% I don't get, 90% of the time, it's they don't have the money at the moment. But I also know from years of training that sufficiently inspired just about anybody can get just about any amount of money. So maybe I need to do some more work with them in the inspirational category. Funny you should mention Tom Hopkins. He was trained by Doug Edwards, who worked for me. Uh, first, Doug was older and wiser and all, but I wrote his book, Sales Closing Power, uh, for his family after he died. So Tommy and I, we were talking on the phone the other day because he's going into retirement. Uh, we were talking the other day about how much Doug had meant for both of us uh, in different ways. Doug inspired me in the beginning and taught me what little I knew about selling in the beginning. And it worked so well, I vaulted ahead and wound up working for him. That is so fascinating. I'm really working hard to get Tom Hopkins. He was the very first seminar I ever attended in my life in New Orleans, 1993. And I got, I'd never been in a big crowd of people. I'm from a small town in Iowa, uh, you know, 3,000, mm -hmm. 4,000 people in an arena and then watched this master walk out and entertain and educate. And frankly, it was Tom Hopkins work that became the basis for the very first sales training manual at a, a little computer company called Gateway Computers. Do you remember Gateway 2000, yes. Ben? <laughs> yeah. Sure yeah. So I wrote all the, the, the baseline sales training and trained that. After seeing a Tom Hopkins seminar, I'm like, that's who I want to be. That's, I, I have found the, the North Star of, of my, my life mission and goals. And you know, to thank him would be an awesome thing. Pick now, up the phone and call him and tell him Ben Gay told him to get his rear end on your show. <laughs> I'm just, I got ben the just thinking about it, Ben. As I was nervous. I've been prepping for your interview for an hour. like, it, And that doesn't include what I was reading last night and the day before and 30 years ago. Well, I'll bet you'd be inclined to do it. And with my endorsement, probably will. And uh, he wants to keep his name out there to continue selling his materials. Uh, when we talked, he said he was going to finish up those speaking engagements for which he committed and been paid for, but he wasn't taking any more. So he's either now retired from the live stage or is on the verge of doing it, but he still has to keep his name out there to keep up his value. So being on your show would be a great move for him. All right. I want to get into some more great content. One of the things that you've been quoted as saying is that sales happens much quicker than most people realize. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, usually in the first 10 to 15 seconds, <laughs> the sale is made, lost, or heavily influenced. I mean, you could walk into the prospect's office, vomit on the carpet, and dig your way out of the situation somehow, some way, if you had time and patience and maybe a couple of more meetings to go to. So it's not absolutely final, no matter how good or how bad it is. But here's what happens when you approach a prospect, whether you're selling in-home vacuum cleaners or at the highest level in the biggest company in America. When you approach them, they, they can't help it. They look at you, the way you're dressed, walk, talk, conduct yourself, the way you shake hands, everything and they run it against their computer bank of all the other experiences they've had in life. I, for instance, have given over 5,000 paid appearances and I'm estimating figuring 500 people and probably in the average audience of the, the uh, address crowds many times of 15, 20,000 and so on. But if you average it all down, 5,000 appearances, probably average out about 500, 500 people a piece and I shook hands with as many of them as they were willing to come. I'm, I'm always the first one in the meeting room and the last one to leave. The janitor and the vacuum cleaner are my friends. Uh, because <laughs> because I, I, I know it's like being in a nightclub at two o'clock in the morning. I know the sound and I'll stay to the last person. Therefore, I have talked to, shaken hands with 
roughly two and a half million people over the last 55 years of high level selling. And when I meet you in person, Gene, I can't help it. I stack you up against in my subconscious and conscious mind, every one of those two and a half million people I can remember at high speed. And a, a guy lost a sale to me one day, a substantial sale. It was uh, in my office, but I have an office wing in the house. So it's one in the same. He got, I saw him get out of his car, happened to be standing in the receptionist area. Saw him get out of his car, put on his coat, so far so good driving a car that wasn't too ostentatious, so far so good, get his briefcase, sort of interested in knowing what he's gonna talk about. And then he cleared his throat and spit in my driveway. Oh. And then he came in and we, I, I went through the motions because he had information I wanted to learn. And I'm confident he thought he had the sale. He didn't know that he lost the sale beyond repair before we ever met. A flip side of that, a dear friend of mine, Richard Burns, was selling home improvement um, stuff. And this is when he was a salesperson. He goes up to a house, had an appointment, goes up to the house, and it's a three-story Victorian. I, in my mind, I pictured it perfectly, though I never really saw the house. It was from his description. With a swimming pool in the front side yard, he starts up to the house. He's got four or five minutes to spare. There's a little girl splashing around the pool and a mother of the little girl. But he knew having talked to, on the phone to the prospect that she, that wasn't her. She was an older woman. And, uh, but the little girl splashed water on him. And uh, not anything you know bad or vicious, but you know, in the splashing around, some landed on his pants. And he says, "Well, you little rascal!" He knelt down, splashed water back on her. Then he talked to the mother for a few minutes, and so on. When he arrived at the front door, he said, "I'm ashamed to tell you, I was a couple of minutes late." But she let it slide. I went through, did all the measurements, did everything, and this is years ago, so this is a lot of money. What she needed done right away was about $70,000 in work. And uh, so he laid out the proposal and, and she uh, looked at it and nodded and said, okay, well, I'll take it, do whatever you gotta do. And he sort of was taken aback and she said, you're surprised how quickly I bought, aren't you? He said, yes, ma'am, I am. I was prepared to answer a whole lot of questions. She said, let me tell you something. The only question I needed answered, I got peeking out the blinds of my living room, watching you play with my granddaughter and daughter. When I saw that, I said to myself, if I have the money and this makes any sense at all, I'm buying today. So there's two examples. It's not even 10 or 15 seconds. Uh, the... Uh, uh, there's a guy here in town, nice guy, I'm sure. He looks exactly, I thought it was him at first, looks exactly like a guy who was married to a very good friend of mine who abused her, we later found out, for 14 years. I cannot, it's all I can do to be civil to this guy. It's not his fault. He just happens to Mexican-American glasses, he just looks exactly, they're like twins as this person. With me, no deal. Because my little computer-like brain ran it up against other people, other experiences I've had, and made a decision in the first 10 to 15 seconds. So what you want to do if you're selling and you say, well, I'm dealing with CEOs of these blah, blah, blah company. Doesn't make any difference. They're humans. They're human beings. Spit in their driveway and see how far you go. <laughs> Do something. Uh, we had you and I had talked casually a moment ago. If we got time, can I run through Buddy the Squirrel real quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And talk about gatekeepers because a lot of the people listening right now are prospectors. They've got to go hunt down that first appointment and get to decision makers. Well, the this is the sort of the ultimate gatekeeper story. I'm doing work for a company, done work with them for years, investment bankers. And I'm talking to a group of them, uh, very successful people. You wouldn't have been sitting around the conference table with me unless you were uh, 
a, a millionaire at least, and the head of the company at the other end of the table is a billionaire, spelled with a B. Sophisticated, educated, well-dressed people. We're out in the little courtyard. Their office surrounds a courtyard, and this, and we're talking about gatekeepers now. How tough it is to get past them, and they said, you know, they they feel sorry for anybody who calls on their office because the world's toughest gatekeeper sits outside the boss's door and controls the company and uh, because she controls the information um, and uh, so on said you know you say you can get past anybody you can't get past that one I said really so we're finishing up the conversation about ready to go back in the meeting room and this squirrel comes running down the railing and uh, the little walkway railing goes down to the end, squats down and picks up a soda cracker, which obviously didn't fall out of a tree. Somebody put it there. And I said, look at that little squirrel, who's feeding it? And I said, and gave her name, the lady that we were just talking about, the killer gatekeeper. I said, that's fascinating. I said, has she named the squirrel? And I said, yeah, that's Buddy. <laughs> and they said it with disdain because Buddy was closer to her than they were. So I said, that's great. So I go back home. We live out in the country. We have a few feed stores nearby. I went to one of them and I said, I walked in and I said, do you have gourmet squirrel food? And they said, yeah, right over here. And they showed me a 10 pound bag of it. And I said, I'll take the bag. And they said, they know me for other reasons. They said, you're buying squirrel food now? I said, well, special project. So I did that, went home, got on Amazon, found coffee cups with squirrel themes. One of them was Squirrel Whisperer. So I bought a coffee cup uh, from them. Then I put the food and the coffee cup when I got it a few days later in a priority mailbox and addressed it to Buddy the Squirrel at company name, address, Pasadena, California. Sent it, priority mail. Uh, and of course, I tracked it on the postal service site so I knew when it got there within minutes of it getting there because they would have handed it to her the phone rings and it's her the killer gatekeeper and she says Ben buddy just got his box and he's excited I already got him a little thing to put it uh, in and uh, he's out he's out there eating it right now and I said well I'm happy thank you so much for saying something she said listen let me tell you something Anytime you need anything in this company, anything, you call me and it will be handled. So Buddy the Squirrel, uh, $8 or $10 worth of food, 3 or $4 for a coffee cup, and $5, I'm guessing, I don't know what priority mail costs, but $5 to send it to her. And I have a friend for life. I didn't call my friend and my real friend anymore don't call him if i need something i call her because it's just handled i called her one time they had hired me to do two sessions my speaking fee is ninety five hundred dollars where i'm sitting at a conference table for the day whether i'm sitting at a conference table or addressing twenty thousand people fees is the same so they hired me for two and uh carter said uh, i'll i'll get you the the check well carter's like i am he means well when he says stuff like that but he's not the detail person. He's a dreamer. So we hung up and I called my new friend back. And I said, hi, Carter's invited me to come down and do a couple of sessions. I need uh, $19,000 uh, for the two sessions. What do you want me to have sent to you? And she said, 19,000, easy peasy. Don't worry about it. And like, I don't know, 10 minutes later, my accounting folks said, uh, Ben, we just got $19,000 in from so-and-so. I said, oh, yeah. This is the lady you can't get past. But less than $20 worth of thoughtfulness and knowledge of Buddy the Squirrel, and you're in. So that is the, the moral to the story is rapport, focus on the other person, think like the customer. What else would you add to that? So good. Uh, I would add to that the yellow door. One of my early friends and mentors, I toss the word around mentor a lot, but I was in a situation 
shocking when you head up a big company like that, which was what was happening at the time. If you were in commission selling, you were either with us or trying to figure out a way to get with us. Earl Nightingale, Dr. Napoleon Hill, Oglandino, that whole gang. And among, so I have a tough time sometimes remembering who told me what, because I was surrounded by people that are legends, 20, 30 of them at any given time, 10 of them in the building at any given time, probably. And I tried to learn from them all. Ray Considine was one of them. He wrote a book called Waynish, which you folks ought to get, W-A-Y-M-I-S-H, which stands for why are you making it so hard for me to give you my money? <laughs> it's, it's a great book. Absolutely fantastic book. So anyway, Ray and I were talking one day and he said, I was talking about some problem. This was before Buddy the Squirrel by years. But I said, you know, I don't, I'm not sure how to figure this out. And he said, well, you haven't thought about it enough. He said, Ben, there's always a yellow door. And I said, what? He said, the yellow door. He said, let me tell you a story. New York World's Fair or Exposition or whatever was happening. This is years ago. The, the, the thing to get in was AT&T's view of the future, you know, of the world. Here's what's coming. That's what everybody wanted to see. And the line to get in it was hours long. And he was married to a lady who was an executive with AT&T. And she, after nosing around, discovered that she, the way to get in was to get in the line with everybody else. Ray didn't understand that concept. So they're standing in the line. He said, we've been there about 30 minutes. I look over on the side of the building, three quarters of the way down, there's a yellow door. And I see people coming and going from it, generally people you know, with tool belts or whatever. But they're, they're going in the building I want in. So he said, I took Betty's hand. We walked across the grass. I went over the yellow door and knocked on it. And somebody inside said, yes. He said, Considine. And the door opened and we walked in. He said, we were right in the middle of the exhibit. No more lines to go through. We were in the middle of the exhibit. And we spent the next several hours having a wonderful time. And Betty, when they were leaving, Betty said, how did you do that? He said, there's always a yellow door. So in your prospecting, trying to get past the gatekeeper, just remember those two things. A, there's always a yellow door. And B, in some form or other, there's Buddy the Squirrel. <laughs> In, in the B2B world, that yellow door could be an executive sponsor. It could be somebody that you have built rapport with that has their way into that decision-making uh, table member. And it's such a good lesson that, you know, our job is to schedule quality appointments. It, it doesn't mean we only cold call, we only email, we only ping people on a social media channel. It requires every angle possible. And as Ben just said, there, there's always a yellow door. There's always a way to that person or that small group of people you need to get to. The problem, Ben, that I see over and over again is most sellers haven't even identified that right person they need to go after. Right. Well, you got to know what the outcome is. And then it's saying, I'm going to find a way or make a way. And if you always remember the yellow door story to say, there's always an angle because what that does is every time you get a no or a, an email gets sent and it doesn't get, re get responded to, a voicemail gets left, it doesn't get responded to, it doesn't mean no forever. And a non-response doesn't mean a no. It just means that you haven't gotten the yellow door yet. Is that fair? Exactly right. Exactly right. And I, I think that well, I sort of thought of that way to a degree, but putting a label on it and the story for me brought it alive. When I decided to teach classes at San Quentin, I just thought it would be good for business and, and you know, to have something to refer to and so on. I was sitting in my house in Marin County, looking across an inlet of San Francisco Bay and behind the, uh, this hill at the end of the San Rafael Richmond Bridge was a smokestack. When I said I decided to sell at San Quentin or sell this program, that's what did it. I saw the smokestack. You couldn't see the prison from there, but I knew it was with the prison. So I did know about the yellow door by then. 
I thought, I wonder who, how you get in there. I didn't know, you know, who you call on or anything. So I thought, who do I know that knows everybody? His name was Margolis, last name Margolis. So I called him up. He was head of a thing called the Marvelous Marin Breakfast Club, which I had avoided joining. I'm, a, I'm not a joiner of clubs. I'm not a lion, a lion or a shriner or whatever. And I've been dodging the Marvelous Marin Breakfast Club for several years. I called him up and I said, I think I want to teach classes at San Quentin. Who do I need to go to see? He said, you need to see Warden Red Nelson. He's a member of the Marvelous Marin Breakfast Club. I thought, damn. <laughs> he's got me so uh, he, he said come to our next meeting it was later that week come to our next meeting i'll introduce you i did he did and later that day i was sitting in warden nelson red nelson's office at san quentin and closed the deal it was just you know how do you get into a prison that has high security that's filled with people you really don't want to know uh, and I've never heard anything good about it in the community, although it was a major factor in Marin County. And uh, how do you do it? Sit quietly for a moment and try and find the hole in the dike. It was Mr. Margolis, which led to Red Nelson, which led to later that day, late that afternoon, I was standing in the Jewish chapel, which was a big open, had a big open meeting space in it talking to my first two or three hundred of the thousands of inmates I worked with over the next five years. Because I found that even San Quentin has a yellow door. And it took me 10 minutes to find it. Unbelievable. I, it's, I'm just, I'm blown away by these awesome, awesome stories. And there's so many good lessons for you that's listening right now. Now, Ben, I want to I want to play a little game and say, okay, give me your favorite memory of the following people that you've worked with in less than a minute. So we just keep this kind of tight, but I'm looking at the list of the people. Again. That... I, okay. You're going to give me some names or something. Yeah. 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 So these All are right. people that like, like for me in listening to the tapes and eventually CDs, of course, and now it's all online stuff, but you know, started out listening to cassette tapes and reading books but I'm listen, looking at this list of the people that were your friends. You either worked with them or they worked for you. So I want to hear, what's one of your favorite memories of Napoleon Hill? Uh, the day he arrived, by the way, I'm a little older than you, to say the least. And I started listening to this material on records. I have <laughs> 10 feet from where I'm sitting right now. The first record that I ever got with a spoken voice on it was The Strangest Secret by Earl Nightingale given to me in that meeting was Zig Ziglar in uh, September of 1965. So when I used to carry albums around of material, it was, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it was 50 pounds. It wasn't click the play button on your cell phone. (laughs) And then the cassettes were a big breakthrough and then the CDs and so on. Uh, So anyway, Dr. Napoleon Hill, my favorite memory is knock on my door door opens, which meant it was William Penn Patrick, because he would knock out a courtesy, but he didn't wait to be invited in. The door opened. He was standing there with a little old gentleman who was 84 years old at the time. I later found out leaning on a cane. And I remember thinking, oh, great. It's another one of Bill's old friends uh, from the old days. And he's going to ask me to build a company around him, which I did on a regular basis. Holiday Magic was the the main company, but we had numerous other companies, same marketing plan, everything, just different product and pricing. So I thought I get, this is going to be multi-level marketing wheelchairs, I bet. <laughs> so I got up to walk around and the Southern gentleman, I said, hi, my name is Ben Gay. And before the gentleman could answer, Bill said, like I was too stupid uh, to have figured it out by myself. Uh, he said, Ben, this is Dr. Napoleon Hill. Well, many people today might recognize because of the pictures and so on. He's been dead 50 years, but by the pictures might have recognized him. I had never seen a picture of Dr. Napoleon Hill. Same day I got the strangest secret record. I was given an old beat up copy of Think You Can Grow Rich, but he didn't have his picture in it. And I said, well, hi, my pleasure to, to meet you, Dr. Hill. He said, call me Nappy. 
and I, again, I'm a Southern gentleman. I was 25, he was 84. I'm not calling a, uh, an elder nappy, nor am I calling a doctor nappy, <laughs> nor am I calling Dr. Hill. So that set off a running battle for the next three years or so until he died. Uh, I would structure entire conversations around not having to say Dr. Hill, because if I did, he'd say nappy and we'd be in a fight. Uh, so it was him. And then Bill Patrick said to me, he said, I have retained Dr. Hill to be, and I really don't remember, we didn't use coach, might've been consultant. And, and I don't remember tossing mentor around as frequently as it is now, but I've retired, I, I retained Dr. Hill to be your friend in essence. And uh, I know there are things you're concerned about you don't want to ask me for fear you'll get fired or whatever. This is a confidant, like a priest. You can ask Dr. Hill anything and it will never go past him. He may or may not solve the problem for you, but it won't go past him. And if we had longer, I would tell you how I even tested that theory once because I didn't believe it, but it turned out it was absolutely true. I could tell Dr. Hill anything and it went no farther than him. So that was the humorous introduction and beginning uh, to my relationship with Dr. Napoleon Hill. He worked for me the last, I'm thinking, two and a half years. I don't remember the day we met, so I don't, I can't quite measure it. But I think two and a half years, not three years of his life, he worked for me. And the first year, uh, Bill paid him. And the second year, uh, Dr. Hill said something about, uh, it's about time to renew or something. So I went to Bill Patrick and I said, Dr. Hill's talking about renewing. He said, well, that's up to you. He said, I paid him 50000 for the first year. Um, so you do what you want to do. So I personally paid him 50000 the second year and the third year, or we didn't live all the way through it, which in today's money is around oh, $450,000, $500,000 was what it cost to buy me a friend. <laughs> now, did you, did you think at the time that... Think and Grow Rich, the book would go on to, I mean, I think it's the number one selling personal development book of all time. And did you, did you realize it at that time? So that must've been what, 50 years ago? Uh, yeah, but this was 1967. So uh, no, I didn't, it had had a run. It had been successful without Amazon and the internet and so on. It had a run in bookstores, but it had, it had had its day. Uh, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but a, a future business partner of mine, I didn't know him at the time, was calling on Clem Stone, W. Clement Stone, Clem. Uh, and in those days, you would take a book, a, a gift to the person you were calling on, like a hostess gift almost. And uh, fortunately, everybody, including me, uh, this gentleman, Morris Pickus, picked up a book, I think in the airport or somewhere, that he'd heard of, he'd never read it, called Think and Grow Rich, and he gave it to Clem Stone as his greeting gift when they met. Clem Stone said, thank you, put it on his desk, and probably Morris never would have thought about it again, but Clem picked it up and read it and loved it and made it required reading for everybody at Combined Insurance. So in those days, you had a blockbuster bestseller if you sold 100,000 books, well, Clem making everybody at Combined get it, it sold 300,000, I'm guessing, oh my God. At, at the time by itself. And then he went on to become his partner in a couple of ventures and his business manager in a couple of ventures. Minus Morris Pickus handing Clem Stone, thinking go rich, you and I would not be talking about it today. Unbelievable. Now you mentioned uh, Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, or I'm sorry, Norman Vincent. It is Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, but I remember yes. the power of positive thinking. Mm -hmm. What was that guy like? Funny as all get out. You know, he was, uh, as a minister, he did his ministerial stuff and, and talked about Jesus and be a good person and so on. I don't mean to make light of it, but that's what people think of when they think of him. I'm telling you, he could have been a stand-up comedian. He, he was irreverent and funny and upbeat at all times. He told in his books, he told stories of when he wasn't upbeat, when he was almost going broke and pulling his hat down over his eyes, running to his car to avoid the creditors. 
<laughs> of, of, of various endeavors he was in and so on. I didn't know him in those days. I knew him as Dr. Norman Vincent Peel, and you're lucky to have him working with you. And he spoke at a lot of our seminars. And uh, But at dinner, uh, he was just, you'd be sitting there. He didn't cuss or anything, but you he'd say something and you'd find yourself double over in your salad bowl laughing and then thinking, did Dr. Norman Vincent Peel just say that to me? He was uh, just a wonderful, wonderful, funny guy. Earl Nightingale, The Strangest Secret. I've listened to that so many times, I almost have it memorized. I do have sections of it memorized, yeah. Uh, that was handed to me the day I joined the business, and uh, Bill Dempsey, my sponsor, handed me Think and Grow Rich. I'll tell you a little story about that, Think and Grow Rich, and The Strangest Secret. At the same time, he said, you're young. I was 23 when I joined. Uh, you're going to be dealing with some pretty experienced people and doing things you've never done. This will help speed up the process. And he gave me those two things. The book, I struggled with a little bit. I wasn't a great student. So reading the book, I didn't run home and read the book is what I'm saying. But I did run home and put on our record player, The Strangest Secret. And I heard Earl's magnificent voice and phrases that my father was a great teacher, but he wasn't a, and now we're going to go to chapter two type guy. He just led his life. And if you were smart, you paid attention. So this was the first time somebody had said to me, you, if you want to be successful, here's what you got to do. Do this, do this, do this, and so on. And I was, remember, furiously taking notes. And then as luck would have it, within days of that, I was driving along in my car in Atlanta, messing with a changer button on the radio, I guess. And on came, they said, and now... Uh, Earl Nightingale's Our Changing World. Laurel had a thing where he did a little five-minute thing, provided to the radio stations for free. That was a, it was a record with five-minute cuts on both sides. So I, as best I recall, he probably got 25 or so radio programs on that one record. Uh, and then you could go out and sell uh, commercials sponsoring it. They had a high percentage of dentists and savings and loan associations sponsoring Earl, who went on to become the most listened to radio voice in the world, heard daily in over 750 radio stations in the United States and Canada. Well, between the record and that, that program, uh, when I ascended to the top of, of Holiday Magic Cosmetics, they didn't have a training program. So I'm desperately, and I wasn't bright enough to to create one. So I started looking for ways to, I don't know if I knew the term at the time, but to private label training. So uh, we had Holiday Magic's this, uh, The Strangest Secret by Earl Nightingale. He just bought records in quantity with them specially labeled. And then he had a program called Lead the Field, still available, Lead the Field, which was an expanded version of The Strangest Secret. So it was Lead the Field it came in a leatherette, black, puffy album, Lead the Field with Holiday Magic. And then Lead the Field with Stay Power, Motor Oil Additives, another one of our companies, Lead the Field with Bob Cummings, Vitamins, and so on. All Earl. And doing that, it brought Earl into our fold, and he became my friend and mentor. I was going to tell you something earlier. Does this stuff help? I was telling that story those two stories, how I got the record and how I got the book to Earl and Dr. Hill up at my house in Marin with a view of San Quentin State Prison. Uh, it's funny how my whole world, although I've been all over the world, most of the important things that have happened in my life happen in a geographically a very small area. So we're sitting up at the house and I said, and so Bill Dempsey, uh, Dr. Hill handed me your book and Earl, uh, Bill Dempsey handed me this strangest secret and and so on. And that's the reason we're here today, because I, through that, I knew you and through that, I hired you and, and so on. And uh, Earl's, one of them, I think it was Earl said, well, did they help you? And I said, well, look around. We're sitting on a mountaintop in Marin County, California, the richest county in the nation at the time, I assume it still is, in one of the biggest houses in Marin County surrounded by 156 acres of pasture, 
bordering the San Francisco Bay, and we're sitting in this glass enclosed huge room looking out at all of it. And the question was, did they help you? And I said, well, I guess. And I sort of looked around where we were, and they started chuckling. And I said, and you both worked for me. So the, the message was driven <laughs> home. Yes, it had helped. <laughs> it hey, Ben. I'm looking at this list of all the people. So we've talked about Dr. Napoleon Hill, Earl Nightingale, Norman Vincent Peale, Maxwell Maltz, Og Mandino, Bill Gove, Larry Wilson. You worked with the Apollo 15, 16, and 17 astronauts, J. Douglas Edwards. I mean, these are like icons. And then I see on this list, and this will be my final question. You worked personally with Charlie Manson, Charles Manson. Tell us about that. It's funny, that list, as you say, I've been lucky because I I seek out people, which is one of the messages, by the way, for your listeners today. It isn't by accident that I knew all of those people. Uh, I sought them out. I went looking for them. Uh, I've met some of the most interesting people on earth, deliberately, maliciously, with malice and forethought. So, but the one you're talking about was accidental. I walked into the prison one night, I, the class is there. It was sort of like scared straight in reverse. Scared straight was Rollway State Prison where they would bring in, inmates would bring in young kids who were sort of getting off on the wrong track and terrifying. Uh, people builders at San Quentin where we started was a young white millionaire comes in every night, every Friday night and yells at you for 12 hours and tells you the way life really works and so on. So, uh, and, and through Red Nelson, I had full run of the prison. I could go without escorts anywhere but death row and the adjustment center. Adjustment center was for bad people. You're bad enough to be at San Quentin to start with, now you're in the adjustment center. But for a technicality or whatever, you haven't yet made it to death row. I walk in and our sponsor, the guy who opened gates for me and made everything easy was named Terry Wooster, Lieutenant Terry Wooster. He said, uh, ben, I've got a guy uh, wants to meet you. Wants to, uh, an in- I said, an inmate? He said, yeah. I said, well, tell him to come to the class. And he said, uh, this one can't come to the class. I said, really, who, who is it? And he said, well, he's looking at us right now, probably through that little slit up there uh, because it's in a direct, like a gun sight, direct line to his cell on the fifth tier of the adjustment center. I said, whoa. Uh, who was that? And he said, uh, Charles Manson wants to meet you. And I said, well, how do we do that? And he said, you just tell me you'll agree to it and, and uh, I'll uh, open open the gates. <laughs> I said, fine. So I met with him three different times for about three hours each visit. Could have gone on every night if I wanted to, but that was, I, I pretty much got it after three visits and he had pretty much gotten me because he had seen me come and go. I would come in on Friday night, we class ran 12 hours straight. Uh, he would see me come in in my three-piece tailor-made suit and he'd see hundreds of inmates greeting me like I was a rock star and staff being friendly to me and so on. And it fascinated me. Instead of Terry Wooster, who is that guy? And Terry told him about the People Builders program and so on. He said, how do I meet him? So therefore we met. When uh, And Charlie, by the way, was crazy. He'd seen Geraldo Rivera, one of the uh, talking heads, interviewing. You'd see the, the crazy side of Charlie with the, you know, the hands waving in the air and everything. And uh, he had that side to him, but that was an act. He fooled Geraldo. Charlie was crazy, but he was crazy sly. Uh, uh, a, a cra- he, they, they never proved he killed anybody, but he was a crazed killer. He just had other people do it. Uh, I'm sitting in the cell and hadn't been there 10 minutes the very first visit. And I heard the keys rattling, which is what guards do. They let them rattle if they want you to know they're coming because they don't want to be in the confrontation every few minutes. If they don't want you to know, they hold the keys so they won't rattle. And then they're right in front of your cell before you knew they were coming. And this guy, I heard the keys rattling and Charlie says, excuse me, we were right in the middle talking about something. He said, excuse me, 
when the guard came by, Charlie ran over to the uh, to the bars and went booga 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 and waved his hands and so on. And the guard kept walking and said, "Hi, Charlie, how are you?" And then Charlie came back, sat down on his bunk, and said, "They love that, man. They love that when I do that." And uh, so I, I saw the act. I saw the act getting ready. I saw it sprung on the guard. It was part of his routine. Now, was he a crazy, uh, murderous guy? Yes. Uh, but he, one of the things I remember when I was looking at him was his eyes were unbelievable. When he was staring at me, I felt like it was going through the front of my eyes and out the back of my head. I remember oh my thinking God. to myself one time, I'm so glad I didn't meet Charlie Manson over in San Francisco with the beatniks and all when I was 19 and didn't know what I was going to do. I probably, had we met, uh, I know myself well enough to know it wouldn't be hard to imagine uh, being in the Manson family. Smarter people than I am joined the Manson, Manson family because he got them at just the right time. Here's a punchline sort of the story. I look up, he has a two bunk cell, but the top bunk was sort of where he kept his stuff. Nobody wanted to room with Charlie. <laughs> Yeah. And the prison didn't want anybody in there. They, he did. Red Nelson didn't want to be the warden who got somebody killed by being stupid enough to put him in with Charlie Manson or vice versa. Manson physically was not a threatening guy. He was a little bitty guy. I liken him to Sammy Davis Jr. I had met them both and they were just about the same size and build. So anyway, I'm looking around the cell and I look up on the top bunk and he has one book. So I, I thought, well, that's interesting. So I look around, you know, for the, the Bible, no Bible. The Gideons hadn't gotten to Charlie in his cell. So I look back at the book. The one book Charlie had, which he later told me was his Bible, was How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Amazing. Yeah, I said, whoa, uh, Charlie, uh, that's an unusual book selection. He said, not really. I couldn't have built the Manson family without it. God, I got goosebumps. I I saw that on a special. I was watching some Charlie Manson stuff and they were talking about his, his delve into, well, what they called manipulation. What um, they went on to say was working on his persuasion, influence and language pattern skills, which is quite interesting when you think about Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It didn't it say like influence gun. people it, to only good, right? Yeah, exactly. A gun, you can defend your family or rob a bank uh, or use it for target shooting. How to Win Friends and Influence People uh, would have been a good book for Hitler, for Charlie Manson, or for every business leader you've ever met. The first two books I ever read in personal development, I was 22 years old. The first one was How to Win Friends and Influence People. The second one after that was Think and Grow Rich. Both of those were gifted to me. And the one thing that I learned in that gifting process is both people said the same thing. I'm going to give you this book only if you promise to read it. Because, you know, I've given books to people and I would, hey, how'd that book go? Oh, I haven't started it yet. I haven't started it yet. So, just a, a little a little lesson there. You know, I've sent my books to people. I'm like, hey, how do you like the book? Oh, yeah, I'm going to start it pretty soon. But when yeah, somebody or, has or some you, stake in the game. Or, yeah, or you talk to them for a minute and discover, you know, they'll claim to have read it. And then you talk to them for a few minutes and it's clear they haven't read it. <laughs> they wouldn't. We were walking through the house one day in Marin and uh, uh, my wife at the time, she's now passed away, Marsha. Uh, had laid a copy of Think and Go Rich on the coffee table in the living room, aimed at the door that you would enter to go in there. I mean, she wasn't even subtle about it. And I said, oh, that, realizing what she'd done, I said, oh, Dr. Hill, look, a copy of Think and Grow Rich. <laughs> and he's like, we always had it on the coffee table. And I said, I said, how does it feel to have written one of the best-selling books in the world. Back then, you say second only to the Bible. I don't know if that was true or not, but a lot. 110 million as of today, the last I heard. I said, how does it feel to have written one of the best-selling books of all time? And he said, best-selling, least read. 
<laughs> he had a clear understanding of the way it worked. I have a, if we were on camera, you'd get a kick out of this, Gene. I have a copy of a book here, Think and Go Rich, one of the original ones. And inside it's uh, autographed to Mrs. Grace Dixon with best wishes, uh, Napoleon Hill. It was given to me by a friend who used to work for me who found it at a uh, garage sale or whatever for 50 cents. And she said, I knew you'd want to have this. So I, she gave it to me and I, it's right here on my desk at all times within easy reach. Here's the fascinating thing about it. The front of it, the paperback cover is long gone, uh, but the front of it is cherry red. The back of it is cherry red. The spine is sun bleached out. I've been in this business long enough to tell you exactly what happened. Mrs. Grace Dixon, whoever she was, got sucked into going to a meeting where Dr. Hill was, listened to his talk, got in line, bought a book, got in line, had him sign it, took it home and stuck it in her bookcase. And that's where it sat with the spine being bleached out for 75 years until it was given to me. And that's God, the amazing. history of most books like that. I tell my kids all the time, don't be a Mrs. Grace Dixon. Buying the book is wonderful. It does nothing. You must read and absorb the book. I think it was Jim Rohn that said, what's the difference between a man who can't read and doesn't read? Interesting take. Yeah. Yeah. Ben, this has been amazing. I'm so excited to get this podcast out and uh, to the listeners listeners send me some feedback on this talk with ben gay the third and you, probably more importantly make sure and go to all the resources that ben has online his website is fantastic there's so many there's free downloads you can get his programs you can get his books but it's bfg the number three dot com bfg number three dot com bfg three dot com and then also, if you want to look into that closer series, which I, uh, it was the basis for everything that happened to me after I, as I was reading those books, I mentioned, I was listening to Ben's work 30 years ago. Then it led to the Tom Hopkins seminar. Then I went to see Zig Ziglar, where I learned the art of public speaking or the science of public speaking. Like I could go on and on and on. And it's, it's, the fact that I get this chance to even conversate with Ben Gay and you get a chance to hear that conversation is a dream come true. Also, if you want to get a rock and deal on that program, I was telling you about the master closers part one and part two, you can go to eBay and there's special pricing on eBay and, and write this down and I'll say it twice. It's stores.ebay slash, or excuse me, stores.ebay.com slash, Ron Zone Books, and that's spelled R-O-N-Z-O-N-E books.com. I'm going to put this link in the show notes along with Ben's website. Go there right away. Let's face it, everybody. I, you're probably sick of me saying this, but the best investment you can make is in yourself. That is not just listening to these free podcasts, which I'm sure are very helpful, but spend some money on a program. Why? Because you put yourself on the hook to listen to it to follow through, to do the work, workbooks. And the only way you're going to change the results you're getting, whether you're, you're not happy with your results and you want to get better or you're doing great and you know there's another level, the only way you change that is through new information, new voices, and a new way of thinking. Change how you think, change your life. Ben Gay is living legend, one of the best in the world, one of the best that's ever lived. Ben, this has been a pleasure. My honor, Gene. Thank you so much for having me on. 